I'm really happy uh, that Jason McLaughlin is here with us this morning. Jason is someone uh, that was pastoring in our area in Malden on Route 1. If you ever saw North Shore Assembly of God, now Freedom Hill Church. As you're driving into the city on Route 1, Jason was on staff there for a number of years. And I've gotten a chance a little bit to know Jason over the years uh, as we've been together in different pastors' meetings and in different conferences. It's been great to get to know Jason a little bit. But Jason and his wife, Holly, are our missions partners in Haifa, Israel. They've been there for a little bit over a decade. And, uh, and not only do they minister in that city, but also Jason is the director of all of the Assemblies of God's missions in Israel and Palestine, uh, which is, uh, you know, there's, there's quite a lot that's going on and that God is doing in that part of the world right now. And so Jason's directing those, those missionaries. Jason also is the director now of the Jerusalem School in Bethlehem, which you're actually going to hear more about in the video we're about to watch. But over 700 students from kindergarten through 12th grade are there in this context where they're hearing the gospel preached and being educated. It's an amazing opportunity. Jason will tell you more about it. Uh, but I really, I'll tell you what I really appreciate about Jason. Uh, Jason loves the word of God. He's very thoughtful. And, and I think you'll see that come through as he preaches this morning. So let's watch this video together, and then Jason will come and minister. Two hundred years ago, on November 2, 1819, Levi Parsons addressed a gathering at the Old South Meeting House in Boston where, 50 years earlier, the events that led to the American Revolution were planned. The next day, Levi boarded a ship in the Boston Harbor and set sail for the Middle East. A little over a year later, Levi walked into the city of Jerusalem becoming the first American missionary to reach the Holy Land. Though armed with Bibles, tracts, and high levels of commitment, Levi found no avenue for engaging with those he had come to reach. The Ottoman Empire expressly forbid evangelism in the building or establishing of new churches. The Ottomans were amenable, however, to the founding of hospitals and schools. Sensing the leading of the Spirit, Levi embraced the idea. Dying of sickness a few months later, Levi would not see the seed become fruit. Others after Levi, however, would take advantage of this open door, and schools were built throughout the Middle East, making a lasting and deep impact on religious, cultural, social, and political levels. Two centuries later, Many of those schools still exist. Most have transitioned into secular institutions, counting some of the most recognized universities in the Middle East among their number. Though times have changed and new avenues for engagement are available, schools remain one of the most deep impact endeavors and missions. With the founding of a school, one has immediate relational networks and equity with families and communities. In places where Jesus' people are scarce, schools have the potential of pouring into the lives of students and their families for a decade or more. Places like Bethlehem and Gaza, where evangelical schools already exist, represent a level of engagement to thousands that Levi Parsons could only dream of. Like Levi Parsons, we often arrive in the difficult places with plans and strategies that need to be adjusted or even abandoned as we encounter the realities and restrictions on the ground. But if we will be faithful and listen, 
we will see that the Lord of the harvest is not surprised by any of man's closed doors and has already been working behind the scenes to provide a way for the light of the gospel to be placed in the darkness. The station must not be relinquished. The door is already open. Levi Parsons, May 7, 1821. Good to be with you today. A beautiful day in southern New England. I'm honored today to share a little bit out of uh, God's Word today uh, to look at what might be a familiar story and see if we can't find something uh, a little bit deeper, uh, a message that might challenge us, uh, might uh, spur us on to better and deeper kingdom work. So without further ado, let's just go ahead and jump in. Mark chapter 6. Beginning in verse 32. So there we read that, So they left by boat for a quiet place where they could be alone. But many people recognized them and saw them leaving, and people from many towns ran ahead along the shore and got there ahead of them. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Late in the afternoon, his disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the nearby farms and villages and buy something to eat. But Jesus said, You feed them. With what, they asked. We'd have to work for months to earn enough money to buy food for all these people. How much bread do you have, he asked. Go and find out. They came back and reported, We have five loaves of bread and two fish. Then Jesus told the disciples to have the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of 50 or 100. Jesus took the five loaves and two fish, looked up toward heaven and blessed them. Then breaking the loaves into pieces, he kept giving the bread to the disciples so they could distribute it to the people. He also divided the fish for everyone to share. They all ate as much as they wanted and afterward the disciples picked up 12 baskets of leftover bread and fish. A total of 5,000 men and their families were fed. America loves the reversal of fortune stories, the rags to riches stories, the the tales of of the immigrant who comes with nothing and ends up with everything, the person who starts off in a a small town who has no opportunities and becomes a a, a recognized name throughout, the sports star who grew up in a, a, a very difficult, poor context and now is known all across the country. We see it in our media, our TV shows. Uh, We see it in our neighborhoods, even just local people that you can talk about and say, hey, did you know that so-and-so didn't always have a lot of money? They weren't always powerful. They, They came from nothing. Did you know that? Wow. You know, look at her now. Look at where she is and consider where she came from. One of my favorite fictional examples of reversals of fortune comes from one of my favorite authors, Mark Twain. In his book, Tom Sawyer, about a boy living in a little Missouri town 200 years ago. 
In the story, Tom Sawyer is faced with the punishment of having to whitewash a fence on a Saturday rather than playing with his friends. And so seeing that he has no means of getting anyone to do his work for him, he comes up with a, a plot or a scheme to, to get others to do his work for him. He pretends that what he's doing is actually very, very fun, hoping that someone will be uh, tricked into doing the work. And so he engages in the work, and as his friends come by and see him having so much fun, they begin to ask if they can participate. And he just can't, nope, I can't give up having this much fun. So they begin to pay him for the privilege of painting his fence. By the end of the story, not only has all of the fence been painted, almost none of it by Tom himself, but Tom can now boast the following. A kite in good condition, a dead rat and a rope to swing it with, 12 marbles, part of a jaw harp, a piece of blue bottle glass to look through, a spool cannon, a key that wouldn't unlock anything, a fragment of chalk, a glass stopper or a decanter, a tin soldier, a couple of tadpoles, six firecrackers, a kitten with only one eye, a brass doorknob, a dog collar, but no dog, the handle of a knife, four pieces of an orange peel, and a dilapidated old window sash. Well, that might not seem like a great list to you, but it made Tom one of the wealthiest kids in his little town, and that is quite the smashing reversal of fortunes for Tom Sawyer. One of the things that confronts people like myself who go to another country and uh, seek to, to teach about the, the Bible, about God, is that we're often confronted with the reality that our context, our culture, has changed the way we understand Scripture, and that people from different contexts read and understand things very differently than we do. Stories like the one we've just read in the Gospel of Mark can easily become associated in our minds with some kind of variation of this rags to riches or reversals of fortune story. Somebody had nothing, no food to eat, and Jesus provided for them. We say, wow, Jesus can do anything. So as long as I stick with him, he'll take care of my needs, and that's the promise of this story, that even when I have no food, Jesus will feed me. Now, of course, this is true. Jesus does look out for us. Jesus does provide for our needs. But just like our culture primes us to celebrate these rags-to-riches stories, sometimes it also conditions us to not see beyond that surface level and see anything that might be different or deeper, a deeper meaning of the story. And of course, it's not just modern Americans who have this problem. The, the Jewish people of Jesus' day also were obsessed with this uh, value of personal gain. In fact, in a, a story after this, Jesus tells the crowds, you're coming to me not because you want to hear what I have to say, but because I fed you. They were also following Jesus, not for his words, but for what they could get from him. So a following after Jesus in order to have our needs met is the wrong lesson to learn from the feeding of the 5,000. What is the, the right lesson? What should we be understanding from this story? One of the things that I've been involved in in the last uh, few years is directing a, uh, a group of people that help our, all of our new candidate workers who go across the, the world to, to share the gospel, helping them understand and read their Bible better, giving them tools so that when they go overseas, they can understand the scriptures better and better communicate the, the truth of the Bible. 
One of our main emphasis in this is in reading large portions of the Bible. Something from the Old Testament and something from the New Testament every day. Not just small, devotional, contemplative reading, but adding to that deep, long readings of the Bible so that we get the story of the Bible in us. We also ask them to pay attention to a number of themes that we see starting from the beginning and running all the way through the Old Testament into the New Testament. The biblical authors, in order to keep these themes recurring, use a combination of quotation and allusion or echoes as they uh, bring up stories from the past. When an author uses a, a quotation, it's fairly easy. When the gospel writer says, thus says the, the, the prophet Isaiah, we can find it and we understand what's going on. But sometimes it's a little more subtle. Sometimes it's just an illusion. Maybe not a quotation of an entire verse, but the repetition of a few key words or numbers or places. Perhaps sometimes the, the setting is the same. Almost like a dream we can't quite remember, but there's something so familiar about this story. And if we are more acquainted with the context and the source of these stories, we can begin to spot these right away. When I was uh, serving uh, on staff at the church in Boston, I, I had never watched a Seinfeld when it was on air. I never watched the, the TV show at all. But I came to realize very quickly that if I didn't have... Uh, references to Seinfeld in my sermons, the people just weren't happy. I needed to have some kind of reference in there to Seinfeld. And the more subtle it can be, the better. And so I would try and slip them in every once in a while, just a, a word here or a phrase there, and I would see their eyes get big. And what was interesting to me is that after, after the service was done and I would go and talk to them, they would say, yes, yeah, I caught the, caught the reference. Yeah, that's the episode where Kramer does this and, and Jerry does that and, and this other thing happens. I only used one or two words, and the entire episode was in their minds. And they were laughing about things totally unrelated to what I said, but it drew up the whole story in their minds. The Bible does this often through the repetition of a few key words and phrases. An entire story is brought back to mind, and we are meant to understand that you are hearing this, but you have to hear it through the ears of someone who understands the first story. One of the storylines that we emphasize is Exodus and New Exodus. The Exodus story, the, the rescue of the Israelites from Egypt and coming through the Red Sea and the destruction of the, the army of, of Pharaoh and the wandering in the wilderness, this becomes one of the most important stories in the entire Old Testament and becomes the foundation story of a people that they look back to time and time again. The prophets and the psalmist especially will reference the Exodus event, all the time. And the psalmist only has to say, your fathers were brought through the sea, and everyone knows what that means. Everyone knows the story. And with that comes not just that story, but the wandering through the wilderness, the coming into the promised land. The prophets also make use of the Exodus, but they also use that story to remind them that the Lord saved their ancestors and saved their ancestors for a reason. That it wasn't just to rescue them from slavery that God brought them out of Egypt and gave them the promised land. It was so that they could be a light to the nations. The prophets would remind them that they often remembered the miracle of rescue and forgot the obligation of their mission. So we see that the Exodus establishes God as a God who not only has the power to save, but has the desire 
to save, who wants to save. One thing we note uh, about this is that these uh, uh, themes typically have kind of a foundation event, and then as it is repeated in the, in the Bible, it grows. It grows until we have this almost apocalyptic fulfillment expectation. So we have an exodus and a new exodus. The people are expecting something to happen again. The Lord will once again rescue them the way he rescued their ancestors. And it will be even greater. It will be an even greater miracle. It will move God's purposes for this world even farther down. So you might be asking yourself, where in the world is this guy going with this Exodus, New Exodus stuff, and what does that have to do with the feeding of the 5,000 in the book of Mark? One of the most recurring themes in the Gospels is that of Exodus and New Exodus. The very fact that Jesus chooses 12 disciples shows that uh, he's concerned with telling the story of God once again rescuing his people and bringing about a new promised land. I would suggest to you that the story of the feeding of the 5,000 is actually a new Exodus story. And to do that, there are all kinds of connections. It's, Exodus is not quoted, but allusions are all over the place, so we don't have time to look at every single one, but let's just look at a few of them that show us, that indicate to us that what we're talking about in Mark chapter 6 is actually a new Exodus story. First, we notice that Jesus takes his disciples to a desert place, a desolate place. And as he arrives there, he sees the crowds of people. So we have crowds of people in a desolate place. The setting is already like the Exodus. Then we have Jesus taking compassion on them and teaching them many things, just as Moses taught the Israelites in the wilderness. We have the disciples saying they have no food and Jesus dividing the people into groups. The disciples complaining like they complained in the original Exodus that they had nothing to eat and Jesus dividing the people like Moses did into groups of 50s and 100s just like he did in Exodus 18 and Deuteronomy 1. Those numbers are important. He has them sit down on the green grass and the only time the grass is green in Galilee is in the springtime in the time when um, the Passover events, the Exodus events would have occurred and it would have been on everyone's mind. But of course, the, the clearest and the, the biggest indication and connection to the Exodus is the miracle itself. You recall that when the Israelites came out of Egypt and had no food and complained to Moses that the Lord provided for them manna and quail. And Jesus here provides bread and fish. The disciples are able to feed the entire crowd with five loaves and two fish, and they collect 12 basketfuls of leftovers. And once again, that number 12 is important because it ties us back to the 12 tribes and the exodus from Egypt. Mark rounds it off by noting that there were 5,000 men that were fed. And this isn't just a, a pre-equality day statement. This is a direct connection to the fact that Moses counted the men because he needed to know how many warriors he had. This final reference to the Exodus lets us know that Jesus and the gospel writer of Mark is expecting the people to understand what is happening as a new Exodus story. 
Why would he do this? Why would Mark write it this way? Why, would, why is it important that this is a new Exodus story? Well, we can, see the, we can say that you know, the strong connections to their past and to their culture is one reason. Why wouldn't Mark do that? Why wouldn't he write a story that uh, taps deeply into the emotions of the people? But I, I believe it is more than that. You see, by the time that Jesus was ministering, there was a great expectation amongst the people that this new exodus would happen. And Mark is indicating that, yes, it is happening, and it's happening through Jesus. This continually utilization of the exodus is leading us to something. We talked about there being a growth in these themes, that it was leading to something greater And by the time of Jesus, they had expected that the new exodus would far exceed anything that had happened before and would finally allow the Israelites, the Jewish people, to truly gain and forever keep all the promises that God had given them. So we can expect Mark to include elements of his new exodus as he talks about Jesus feeding the 5,000. But there is a difference here. And sometimes those differences are important. The thing that jumps out to me uh, as I hold these two stories together in my mind is that in the original Exodus, God provides manna for them every day, but only as much as they need. If they collect more than they need, it rots in their possession, and they wake up the next morning to find it full of maggots. But in this one, not only does it provide for the needs, but there are leftovers. The new exodus will not only rescue God's people in a final and prophetically fulfilling way, the new exodus will expand the rescue, spilling over to not just the people who are in slavery in Egypt, not just enough for them, but spilling over for all the families of the earth. You see, what Mark is saying is that in this new exodus event, the way Jesus is bringing about new exodus, Israel will finally be able to fulfill its mission of being a light to the nations. It won't just be enough for them. They will have an abundance. They will be able to take what is left over, not for their own benefit, but for the benefit of the world. Now, that's all well and good, and you might say, well, that's neat. We learned something today. That's a neat little literary connection. But what does that have to do with us? What does it have to do with us today as we look at the new Exodus story? What have we really gained by understanding that this is uh, a retelling of the new Exodus? I would suggest to you that the meaning for us today, 2,000 years after the event, is the same as it was for those who first experienced it. You see, Jesus is still bringing about new exodus in people's lives. He is still rescuing people from bondage, from slavery. And those people who are accepting God's gift of rescue, of salvation, are being brought into his people, being brought into the family of God. And as they are being rescued, they are also being given a mission. And just like the prophets would remind the Israelites that you accepted the rescue and you forgot the obligation of a light to the nations. Jesus is saying, not only am I rescuing you now, but I'm empowering you for mission. I'm giving you everything you need and more. I would suggest to you today that the Lord wants us to be like his disciples on that day, to look around and see the need all around them. Lord, send them away. They need to go. There's not enough food. And if they don't go somewhere, they're going to faint 
People are going to die. You need to do something, God. The Lord wants us to look around and see the brokenness around us and come to him and say, God, do something. Do something about this marriage of, of our neighbors, of our friends, of our family. Lord, do something about that relationship. Lord, do something about that person who's struggling to keep a job or struggling with addiction. God, do something. And I believe the Lord looks at us and responds to us the exact same way that he responded to his disciples. And he says, you feed them. You give them something to eat. We look back at the Lord and we say, but, but we have nothing. I don't know what to do about that situation. I, I have no training. I have no resources. I am not qualified. I have nothing. And he says, what do you have? Tell me what you have. And we hold out our hands and we open it up. And whatever is in there, the Lord says, it's enough. It's all I need. All I need is for you to give me everything you have. And I will take it. And I will multiply it. For those of you who are at 51 Lexington Street here or watching from your home, if you have not personally experienced God's deliverance in your life, I want you to know that the Lord is still bringing about rescue. The Lord is still bringing about new exodus. He's still bringing people out of bondage. If you have not embraced God's new exodus, I encourage you to connect with someone from Mount Hope and to understand how you can accept God's rescue and be part of this new exodus. For those of you who look around you and, and see the crowds, the lost sheep who have no shepherd and have compassion for them but feel like you can't do anything and are crying out to God, God help them. I want you to hear the voice of your Savior saying, you feed them. You do something about it. And when you recognize your own poverty, your own lack of uh, training and skill and inability to, to do anything in this scenario, understand that God has never needed our talents and our skills. He uses them, but what he needs is our obedience. The currency in the kingdom of God is not silver and gold. It is obedience. And if we will give our lives over to God, it will, if we will give our time, our resources, our emotions over to God, he will multiply them. And it will not only be enough for what we need, not only enough to, to help us sort through our own issues, it will be an abundance. Not so that we can become wealthy, but so that we can use that abundance to reach out to others. For those of you who look around you and see the need, hear the voice of your Savior saying, you feed them. And if you'll just give me all you have, just give me what you have. It doesn't have to be much. I will multiply it and it will be enough. Lastly, I would like for you to remember that while brokenness is everywhere in this world and all of us who become part of the people of God are called to God's mission, every last one of us, I want to remind you that there are places in this world where there are no followers of Christ to announce the good news of God's new exodus. There are places in the world where people will never meet a Christian, never hear the good news unless someone is sent. It may seem like you only have a little to offer to help get to these places. But that's what these weeks are all about. Taking whatever we might be able to give and allowing God to multiply it so that workers can spread around the world and encounter people who have never heard the name of Jesus. Some of them on our own college campuses coming from countries where the gospel is not allowed. And yet they come here and they meet a Chi Alpha student 
They meet a follower of Jesus and they hear for the first time about the good news and they are filled up and there's overflowing and they can take it back to their countries and spread the gospel. One of the ways that the Lord is bringing about new exodus in our part of the world is through a school located just a few miles from where Jesus was born. The Jerusalem School Bethlehem is a kindergarten through 12th grade school, as Pastor Brian said, with over 700 students. It's an English language school, which means that the local people uh, are excited to send their kids there because it's an educational opportunity for them. It allows them to have opportunities for colleges and universities they wouldn't normally have, and so they're willing to go to an openly Christian school and let their kids be exposed to the gospel. As we said in the video, as you saw in the video, some of these children start in kindergarten and go all the way through. That means that we have 12 and 13 years to tell them about Jesus, to show them the love of Jesus. It's an amazing place where the love of Jesus and the message of hope and peace is being taught and demonstrated in a place that experiences very little hope and very little peace. It is a place where students are encountering Christ every day, some of them from more than a decade, each and every day as they go. We have come alongside this school to guide and direct it as uh, we have engaged deep, more deeply in the, the effort to help provide teachers some funding and vision for their future, for their strategy for the future. We ask that you pray for us as we, we struggle to obtain visas for our volunteer teacher, teachers from all around the world. As we help to develop curriculum and, and insert the love of Christ wherever we can, as we fight with government officials who do not want us sharing about the love of Christ. We ask that you pray for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the teachers and on the administration for wisdom and for witness. This season has been especially difficult in Palestine as they are so dependent on the tourism industry and with the country shut down, many of them have had to sell their businesses and have gone bankrupt. But the Lord has been good, and the Lord continues to bring about new exodus in our context, those who are encountering daily the message of Christ. I'd like to invite the worship uh, team back up to the platform as we close our time together. As we look at this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 and we see the deep connections to Exodus and New Exodus, the abundance for mission, I want to remind you that the Lord wants to do so much more for you than simply provide for your lack, to simply provide when things run short. Yes, of course, he wants to take care of you. Yes, of course, he has the ability and the power to do that. But he wants more for you than to simply reverse your fortunes to ensure that you end up with more than you started with in this life. He wants you to, to bring you along in a new exodus, to set you free from bondage, and then empower you to take what you have been given, no matter where you are in life, no matter what you have, to give it to him and let him multiply it so that you can do far more than you can ever imagine in the kingdom of God. During these times of uncertainty, may you rest assured that God still provides above and beyond what we need. But that provision is not so that we can grow rich, not so that it can rot in our possession. It's so that we can turn around 
and give the abundance to others, to pass on this message of salvation, of rescue, of deliverance to a hurting, dying world as God's chosen people and as lights to the nations. By way of closing, I would like to say a prayer over you. Lord, I pray for this congregation gathered here today in this beautiful city on this beautiful day. Lord, I pray that if there are those who are here or those who are watching who have not experienced your salvation, who have not been brought along in this new exodus, that you continue to accomplish in your world. I pray if there are those who are still in bondage to something, that you would rescue them, that they would allow themselves to be taken by you out of bondage into the promised land. Lord, for those who have embraced your rescue, who are part of your people, Lord, who see the brokenness of this world all around them and are desperately crying out, Lord, do something, I pray that they would hear the voice of their Savior saying, you do something. You feed them. And in fear and trepidation, as we admit that we don't have everything we need and all we have is something small, we hear again your voice saying, it is enough. Give whatever you have to me. Open your hands and I will multiply it. Not for ourselves, but for a broken world. Lord, I pray that through those gathered here today, lives would be restored, marriages would be rescued, relationships would be made whole. People would encounter the power of a healing God, a loving God, because we have seen the brokenness and you have empowered us to do something about it. I pray for an outpouring of your spirit on everyone here in this congregation that the word of your new exodus and your rescue will travel to the far corners of this area and throughout the world. We ask for it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that has work, as, is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.